Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead today, this year marks the 50th anniversary of the Bogalusa Heart Study. We'll hear what makes the town's biracial, semi-rural southern population important for this medical research. We'll also talk about new developments with that study. We'll talk also about a report detailing the growth potential of the offshore wind energy industry in Louisiana. But first, in 2021 in New Orleans, three residents sued the city, alleging that the failure to ensure wheelchair-accessible sidewalks violated the Americans with Disabilities Act. While the city later agreed to a settlement to install ramps and curb cuts on hundreds of street corners around the city, the city's own data revealed that less than half of those intersections are compliant with ADA standards now. Drew Costley has been reporting this story for Verite News and joins us now for more. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Adam. So, Drew, you spoke with multiple residents with physical disabilities living in different neighborhoods in New Orleans. What neighborhoods are they living in? How did the plaintiffs describe their experiences with inaccessible sidewalks? And why did they ultimately decide to bring a lawsuit against the city? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you had Francis Falls, who's living in Central City, Stephen Namasnuck, who's living in Al George's Point, and Joe Henry, who's living in Holly Grove. And um, I spoke to Francis Falls for this story, and he said that it's still hard to get around his neighborhood. Even that's sort of the best, the best off neighborhood out of the three in terms of the work that the city said they would get done. Um, and they basically they brought the lawsuit because there were a bunch of curb cuts and road work that the city said that they would do for years, and they hadn't done it yet, and it made it impossible for these people to get around their neighborhood safely. Yeah, so I imagine if you are in a wheelchair, it's hard to get around when you have to hop a curb. Uh, to get on a sidewalk anywhere. Is this basically about curb cuts? And what are the experiences of the plaintiffs? What do they say it's like trying to get around and how does it affect their life? The main thing in the settlement and the lawsuit they brought were about curb cuts and curb ramps, but it's more than that. So there's the area where the sidewalk meets the curb if there's like too much space in between then it makes it hard for a wheelchair user or someone who's using a walk or someone who has mobility issues to sort of navigate that 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 change in terrain and then it's the sidewalks themselves a lot of the sidewalks throughout the city just need a, a ton of work like some of them are completely busted up and have vegetation growing out of them and aren't, aren't navigable so a lot of times people who have mobility issues who can't use the sidewalks or the curbs, they end up in the street. Really dangerous for folks to just be walking on the side of the street um, or rolling on the side of the street. And so they're putting themselves at great risk to get around the city. So tell me about the status of what the situation looks like now. What parts of the city have had these curb cuts built? What neighborhoods are still waiting on accessibility infrastructure? Yeah, so there is a citywide effort to increase accessibility, do road work, improve sidewalks. There's only about half of them that are ADA accessible, and that's according to the city's own data. And some of the worst off places are not even the ones like Holly Grove is, but there's other areas like the Desire area that are still like really bad that just weren't even part of that lawsuit. So the, the status is that the city is trying to make curbs, sidewalks, streets more accessible, more navigable, 
But the lawyer in the lawsuit, Andrew Beiser, you know, he kept saying that the ADA, the Americans with Disability Act, is over 30 years old. And so it's like for folks who are putting their lives at danger just to like do something as simple as like going to the store or getting some fresh air, it's not happening fast enough. It should have happened decades ago. You mentioned less than half of those corners have been made accessible. They're still not compliant. What's taking the city so long? What's the holdup? Clearly, you know, as we all know, the city has a lot of infrastructure projects going on. It's an old city. There's going to be all this old infrastructure that if you don't do regular maintenance, like every 25 to 30 years, you you, you end up with these huge citywide issues. And so there's like all of this road work that needs to be done across the city. And um, they are governed by different contracts. There are certain contracts that the city has the power to sort of dictate which order the, the streets go in. And then there's ones that they don't. And then there's material shortages that can happen, natural disasters. I would say that there's, there's folks in the disabled community who just say that the city doesn't see them, you know their needs aren't treated with the same urgency as the needs of other communities. Mm -hmm. What happens next? New Orleans is a city where 10% of people roughly identify as having a disability. So how are the, the activists, the lawyers, residents responding to these delays? Yeah, so in terms of the specific lawsuit brought against the city, their lawyer, their representation said that he's going to start giving them deadlines to complete work that they said they anticipated would be done by now. And the next step after that would be to drag them back into court. In terms of the city, they're just going to move at their own pace. You know, um, that's it's an unsatisfying answer. But um, citywide, the city is just I think the accessibility issues will get solved as soon as the infrastructure issues get solved when it comes to roads. Um curbs and sidewalks. So I don't know if folks are, should hold their breath necessarily. Drew Costley is a reporter for Verite News. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Appreciate you. From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the Bogalusa Heart Study. Started in 1973, this study looks at the impact of vascular and metabolic changes on health throughout the lifespan, and it's one of the longest ongoing heart studies of a biracial, semi-rural southern community. Back in January, director of the Tulane Center for Lifespan Epidemiology Research, Dr. Lydia Bazzano, joined us to tell us what researchers have learned from the half century of research. Today, she joins us for an update specifically on some exciting news from the study that examines the connection between the heart and the brain. Dr. Bazzano, thank you for being here. Great. Thank you for having me. So let's back up and start for just a second to remind listeners about the early days of this heart study in Bogalusa, back when Dr. Gerald Berenson first began the study. What exactly was he looking for? Who were the research subjects? So the research subjects were children in school primarily, and he was looking at the early origins of heart disease. So at the time that he started the study in 1973, it was really revolutionary to look at the childhood origins of cardiovascular disease 
because at the time there were a lot of unknowns and most people didn't think that children would be affected by heart disease risk factors like high blood pressure, high cholesterol and those sorts of things. And when they were, when they did find those sorts of risk factors, it was thought that children would grow out of them as they became adults. And now 50 years later, we followed those children to adulthood. Yeah. The study is noted for its use of a diverse and rural population. Can you tell us why that has been so significant with the study and its findings? Yeah. So a lot of social context that has occurred over the last uh, 50 years or so has led to what we now call health disparities. And these health disparities were around before that, but many of them are due to geographic location. Being in a rural location might put you farther away from medical care. Um, you may live in uh, an area where it's difficult to find grocery stores that sell fruits and vegetables nearby. There are a lot of fast food restaurants and areas that are rural. And then we also have uh, race and ethnic diversity. And uh, we know that there can be differences in health outcomes based on that. And also income diversity that is different from what other studies have. Let's dive into these heart-brain studies more specifically. What are the questions you are asking about this connection? Yeah, so we are looking at Alzheimer's disease in particular. And so what we're doing is looking at the early signs that something is happening in the brain and the connection of that to these heart disease risk factors and atherosclerosis. Our mission here is really to see if the heart disease risk factors that we know can be prevented can also help prevent Alzheimer's dementia later on. Interesting. I know you've also looked at how a child's diet may impact their brain years later. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we did look at various dietary foods and patterns. And what we saw was that among children, young adults, um, all the way to midlife, that patterns that had a lot of fried foods, uh, salty foods, processed foods, were higher in terms of the risk of developing uh, lower scores on our tests for brain health. Hmm. We're speaking with Dr. Lydia Bozzano, director of the Tulane Center for Lifespan Epidemiology Research. We're talking about the Bogalusa Heart Study and some new research on the heart-brain connection. Of course, we've also seen medical technology evolve significantly over the past half a century. Can you tell us how you're using technology in these studies, specifically when it comes to Alzheimer's research? Yeah, well, we're looking at a lot of new technology in terms of what we can gather about information on the brain. And so one of the things that we have started doing is to use an iPad for testing brain health checks. There's a smartphone application that we might be able to use 
that would have individuals able to download the brain health check and a lot of other new tools that can help us get the people that we have lost over the years to be a part of our study again. Almost 15,000 people have ever been examined in the Bogalusa Heart Study, but at the moment, we're only following about 3,500 of them. I suppose that's an important population considering you only started with so many and you can't go back and get more people who you didn't reach out to 50 years ago. That's right. That's right, because the data from childhood and young adulthood is so important to what we're looking at now. The children who lined up to participate in the study 50 years ago, they're well into adulthood, I should say, probably later parts of life now. What have they said about their involvement in this research? What have they gotten out of being a part of it? Well, you know, I've heard a lot of a lot of positive comments and people who enjoy the study and enjoy being a part of something that is bigger than themselves and that will help future generations. Um, we have some very loyal participants who come back to us year after year and ask if we have new studies. And the exams that we do conduct are uh, very thorough. And so people can get a lot of health information from lab work, from an ultrasound of the heart. Hmm. So we've been talking about this new research into the brain that came out of the Bogalusa study, something that the original designers of the study possibly didn't even think of. Can you tell me about the future? What else might this study lead to in the coming years? Any future research projects that you're excited about that you can imagine or that you know might be coming down the, the pipeline? Well, we definitely have new projects coming down the pipeline that work further on the digital biomarkers aspect of things. So um, voice as a biomarker, the aspects of the voice outside of language. Can we get at uh, voice clues to brain health uh, that could be helpful to detect early Alzheimer's disease. We're also looking at biomarkers in the blood. Um, there's a panel of 40 or more biomarkers that we'll be testing soon that will help to determine one's risk of Alzheimer's disease using a blood test instead of brain biopsy or cerebrospinal fluid, which is all very invasive. So those are a couple of the things we have coming down the line. Dr. Lydia Bazzano is the director of the Tulane Center for Lifespan Epidemiology Research. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. Last month, in October, the Kathleen Babineau Blanco Public Policy Center at the University of Louisiana Lafayette released a report detailing the growth potential of the offshore wind energy industry in Louisiana. The report was commissioned by Restore the Mississippi River Delta and the Greater Lafourche Port Commission. Simone Malaz is campaign director for Restore the Mississippi River Delta, who is involved in that report. She joins us now to outline what important things that report tells us about Louisiana's wind industry. Simone, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So what new insight does this report give us about the wind industry here? 
Yeah, it tells us a lot because um, talking about wind in the Gulf of Mexico is is pretty new. And one of the perspectives that I'm bringing to it is this idea of how it maybe could help coastal restoration, protection. So trying to put that lens on something that's pretty new and exciting for this area. Now, you had some metrics along with this report. How much can you tell us about what to expect from wind offshore, considering it just got started? Yeah, there's a whole lot behind an answer to that question. You know, what we had been hearing about our huge sales on the East Coast and the West Coast, billions of dollars worth of wind leases off those two coasts. And finally, we had an opportunity here in the Gulf of Mexico for a federal lease sale. Um, but a lot of times people even wanted to know what kind of money are we talking about? What what could this industry mean for the Gulf of Mexico? So we knew we needed to answer that question first. And we went to our very good friends at, at ULL and the Blanco Public Policy Center. They had done some extensive work on traditional oil and gas revenue sharing. And wind revenues is akin to that, very, very similar. And so we went to some in-state experts to look at that for us. So they looked at the general potential. And then while they concluded that um, bulk of that report in the spring, the federal government announced a real live lease sale here in Louisiana. So we were going to actually be able to put real numbers to some of that formula that the Blanco Public Policy Center came up with. So we did it in two parts. We did it in the hypothetical, and then we were actually able to, to kind of money where our mouth is when it came to the 829 lease sale. Yeah, it sounds like you had some structure for these numbers once they came through from that lease sale. I wanted to mention that that first ever offshore wind energy auction for the Gulf of Mexico back in August. It was a pivotal moment. Uh, there is a company that has plans to develop it, invest billions of dollars, generate above a gigawatt of energy. We we know about that news already. And of course, those sound like big numbers just by the scale of it. But one big takeaway from that news was that the amount that was leased and the bids were maybe underwhelming compared to what you would see off the East Coast. And that might signal a bit of cold water, perhaps, on the burgeoning Louisiana offshore wind industry. Um, is that fair? Tell me how that separate response colors what we should expect of Louisiana's wind energy. Yeah, doing that first piece of the report, even understanding what goes into it, what goes behind it, there's formulas that start with bonus bids from day one that last throughout the duration of the lease, which is called rents. And then when you actually start producing energy, another factor kicks in. And that first um, lease sale was over $5 million. But once you really started to unpack a number like $5 million, you understood that the per acre price of that is it was very similar to Kitty Hawk off of the Carolinas coast. It was very similar to first lease sales on both the East and West Coast that only grew from that first lease sale. So we you have to unpack that a little bit. The first lease sale always involves a little bit of risk because it's never been done before. Um, you don't know what the conditions are like. I think one important factor also came in this piece of something that we hadn't heard about before. It came in the form of credits. And those credits, which was over $800,000 of part of that bid, goes to workforce and manufacturing development, as well as some fisheries compensatory mitigation. That money gets invested directly, hopefully, into our Louisiana communities and will give us a leg up on future lease sales as well. 
So while it maybe seemed unexciting at first, we had one good bid from a company, the Texas Lee sales didn't have any. Once you started to unpack that, it started to look more positive for the future here in coastal Louisiana. And I still think it is something that people here are very excited about. We're speaking with Simone Malaz from Restore the Mississippi River Delta. We're talking about the potential of the offshore wind industry in Louisiana. So what's that bottom line? What kind of numbers can this report tell us about what the state can expect as far as revenues? Yeah. So one of the first problems is that we don't actually, in um, as opposed to how we have with traditional oil and gas revenue sharing, we don't have that dedication on the federal level or on the state level. So there's some work that that policymakers need to do. They have to pass federal legislation, which would dedicate some of those revenues to Louisiana. And then on the Louisiana side in Baton Rouge, we then have to dedicate that money to the coast if that's what people are interested in. So so while the numbers tell you one thing, there's more action that needs to happen that would direct that to Louisiana. And of course, selfishly, I'm very interested on how we might be able to use that along our coast. So it sounds like the way the structure is set up right now, when there's a lease sale for wind, this, the state gets nothing from that. Is that right? They do get some pieces and parts of it for sure, but this was a federal lease on federal waters, so most of that is controlled by the federal government. Now, what we're talking about are federal lease sales. There's an entirely different structure for any state lease sales that happen within state water bottoms. So is this report, in a way, artillery for promoting for that revenue sharing that isn't yet established? We were getting lots of questions, and so this was one exceptional way to be able to answer some of those frequently asked questions about who's interested in this, what kind of investment would they make, and then what is the potential here uh, for Louisiana to to share in those revenues. Um, but again, the numbers tell us one thing about about the viability of an industry here in Louisiana. And then very selfishly, we want to make sure that that's getting reinvested right in the state for the future. Yeah. So we know the federal government got a certain amount of money for that lease sale. What do those numbers look like? What could Louisiana get if the public policy worked in our favor, if revenue sharing happened, some of it funneled back to the state? What could that look like? Yeah, it comes in a couple of different phases. So we only know about this first phase and and what that could look like. And, and that looks like thousands of dollars. Um, and then we're thinking about what that long-term lease looks like. So while a couple of thousand dollars doesn't sound very exciting at first, we know that we need a billion dollars here in coastal Louisiana for our program. And so we need to start looking for ways to help us continue to protect and restore our coast at that billion dollar level in the future. What public policy would you advocate for to make the most out of Louisiana's potential wind industry? Yeah, there's lots of things to think about when you think about the wind industry, you think about workforce, you think about all the environmental factors that that go into it. Uh, but then there's also the the laws, like we mentioned about, you know, dedicating that money uh, or sharing in those revenues that, that go back to the state. So there's lots of different aspects of policy to consider. But really what we want to leave folks with is that um, it, it's certainly something that Louisiana can look towards both help 
our working coasts and industries, but also help the coast itself. Simone Malaz is campaign director with Restore the Mississippi River Delta. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for being here. I'm glad to talk about it. Happy to come back again when time has been able to tell the story a little bit more. And it's been Louisiana Considered on a Wednesday. I'm Adam Voss. A thank you to Drew Costley from the Verite Newsroom and from Dr. Bazzano from Tulane. Our producer, our executive producer, managing producer is Lana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Audrey Purcell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman, and you can find Louisiana Considered on the radio Monday through Friday, 12 noon and 7 p.m. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.